Shabbat Shalom. Our parsha is Parshat Tazria, which means she shall be she shall be seated. So it's a good parsha for spring. And at the beginning of Parshat Tazria, we hear of a woman who conceives and gives birth. And the Torah wants to tell us that she becomes tmea, which is often translated as impure, for seven days if she gives birth to a male, and 14 days if she gives birth to a female. For 33 days, she is to remain outside the sanctuary in the case of a male, and 66 in the case of a female. And we should know that this is part of a larger system of ritual readiness and unreadiness, purity and impurity. So also people who have come into contact with death, who are menstruating, who have had an emission of seed or some other kind of, and also um, tzara'at, which is a kind of skin illness. Uh, all of these people, right, what, you can figure out, like the category is a little bizarre, right? All of these people, um, I can hear Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. Um, <laughs> All people in all of these states are required not to enter the holy place for a period of time. And they must undergo certain rituals, depends on the state which ritual, in order to re-enter. So the question has engaged many scholars and, uh, and those who uh, probe our tradition. This question of why the state of Tumah, right, which for now we will translate as impurity, although we're going we're gonna to work on that. Um, why it applies not only to contact with death, which we can understand one might be hesitant to come near, but also to contact with life. Many of the states that require non-entry into the sanctuary are not, in fact, about death, but about life. So why, for purposes of entry into sacred space, should the blood of birth be similar to touching a corpse? So there are lots of answers to that. Much ink has been spilled. To try to understand why something as beautiful as the birth of a child is a reason for exclusion from the sanctuary. The corresponding category, I might add, the category of not being in Tuma is tahor, tahara, purity or clarity, the state of being permitted to enter the holy place. So what do we do with this category, aside from, right, many of us might wish to dismiss the system. Some have attempted to work with it. For example, Rabbi Phyllis Berman has reinterpreted Tuma as a kind of self-care, in which someone is excluded from the sanctuary so that they may feel free to pursue private concerns, like taking care of a newborn or grieving. Others, such as Rabbi Nancy Wiener, have understood uh, Tuma as uh, a recognition that touching something as profound as death or birth requires emotional space before re-engagement with God and the community. My colleague, Rav Kohenet Teashir, understands Tuma as a state of liminality, a person who is on the border between worlds, and that she suggests that this is a state of such power that it is wise to exclude a person from the sanctuary because of the extreme spiritual potency of these forces of life and death. So not to bring you know, two uh, powerful forces together, the sanctuary and the person in the state of liminality could cause a spiritual explosion. I have a different understanding that I'd like to share with you. 
And my answer depends on my sense that there are not, there is not only one sacred space in the lives of the Israelites of the Torah. In fact, there are two. The Israelites actually live in three separate realms. The first is the Kodesh, or the Sanctum, the tabernacle, where worship and offerings take place. The second is the Machaneh, the camp, which is the setting of ordinary life, tribal politics, family dynamics, and the world of making and doing. And the third is the Midbar, the wilderness. And the wilderness is a fearsome place. You don't want to have your car break down there. Those who contract, contact, um, contract Sarat leprosy are sent to the wilderness. The goat for Azazel, the scapegoat, is sent to the wilderness. The ashes of the red heifer, the ritual mixture that removes the taint of death from individuals who have been engaged in burial, is stored in the wilderness. And we receive Torah in the wilderness. The sanctuary, the Kodesh, that is named as holy. But the wilderness may also be holy. Its name, Midbar, means the place of speaking. Like the sanctuary, the wilderness is a place where spirit speaks. Of this wilderness holiness, David Abrams, in his wonderful book, The Spell of the Sensuous, writes, Boulders and stones seem to speak their own uncanny language, of gesture and shadow, inviting the body and the bones into silent communication. In contact with the native forms of the earth, one's senses are slowly energized and awakened, combining and recombining in ever-shifting patterns. This threefold horizontal structure of sanctuary, camp, and wilderness is matched by a threefold vertical structure. John McKenzie, in his book, End Time, writes, Ancient Near Eastern thought conceived the world as structured in three levels, the heaven, the earth, and the underworld. The Israelite tribes of the Bible see the world as divided into these three realms, the sky, the earth, or settled land, and the ocean depths, or the depths of water under the earth, the underworld. God lives in the heavens with the angels, right, and sends down a ladder now and then. The, um, the underworld is the realm of the primordial deep, and in, in the Torah, it's where the ancestors live also. They live down there. Um, it's called Sheol sometimes, that place, which means the asking place. And it's also called in certain places to home, the great deep. And the human realm balances, right, is in this sandwich, right, between these two eerie places, between the order and perfection of heaven and the ever-turning primordial chaos of the sea. To home, the sea appears very early in the Bible, when darkness is on the face of the deep. And the word to home is cognate with Tiamat, the uh, sea dragon of Babylonian myth who nearly engulfs the world. The book of Proverbs speaks of God drawing a circle on the to home, on the deep. So there's a circle of order, right? That's the machaneh. And then outside you have the tahom, which is the abyss, right? It's here be dragons, literally. 
Jonah also goes to Tehom, right, in the fish's belly, and he says, from the belly of Sheol I cried out and you heard my voice, right? He's, he's there in the underworld. Um, and he calls it Beten Sheol, the belly of Sheol, as if it's a womb itself. And it is a place of birth, right? It's there on the face of the deep that when the spirit of the divine is fluttering and saying, let there be light, right? It's, it's, it's on the deep that that, first light appears. So the place of primordial depth is the primary material of creation. It's both. It's the anti-creation and it's also the matter of creation. So how do human beings negotiate relations with the two worlds of above and below? Right? They both seem a little bit too big. Right? Like the sky and the sea are, are huge and we're small. So what do we do about that? So the Israelites move that vertical relationship onto a horizontal plane, right? They have the Kodesh, the sanctuary, which represents heaven, right? And where you can, under carefully supervised and very predictable circumstances, encounter the power of God. That's really what the sanctuary is for, right? Through special rituals and offerings, right? You come into careful contact with Shemayim. The Kodesh, if you will, represents the heaven in a form human beings can touch, even if only one high priest one day a year can really go in there. So where do they and we encounter the the deep, the wilderness? Maybe it's Sinai. But I would contend that if the sanctuary is a piece of heaven, the wilderness is a piece of Tehom. The wilderness is a piece of the great wildness and therefore the place of right, things coming into being and going out of being, creation and destruction, death and birth. So Tahor, right, the state of being able to go into the sanctuary may be connected to Shemayim, and Tameh is connected to home, right, to all of this constant change. Right? If Tahor is about encountering, encountering eternity, then home is about encountering ever change. There's even a hint in the book of Deuteronomy that the Israelites used to make offerings in the wilderness. We know this because Deuteronomy asked them to stop doing it. Right? Deuteronomy says, you know those, like, those like, wilderness beings, those goat demons that you guys keep going out to talk to? Could you please stop? Like, don't do that anymore. So that's how we, uh, that's how we know about it. But, so that means there, you know, there was sacred space out there too. Maybe that's where Miriam spent her seven days in the wilderness after she had Sarat. So I want to propose that we might think of the things that make a person Tameh as the things that the people who guarded the sanctuary were most scared of. Birth. Fertility. Death. The unknown. If heaven is the place of perfection, to home is the place where things come, go in and out. Right? That we are in, in liminal space. And indeed, life and death are mysterious and dynamic. And they operate according to unpredictable, realm, unpredictable rhythms. It's not the careful six days in Shabbat and 30 days in Rosh Chodesh and so many days between Passover and Shavuot. It happens like that, right? And you have to be paying attention to the rhythms of that life force, which we can't control. 
And I wonder if one of the reasons that we often use water as a way of changing state from going to Tameh to Tahor is because we're going into the Tehom, right? A journey right through that place, through that, those waters in order to get back to our state of Tahor where we think we know who we are and that things are going to stay the same for a while. So when our parasha says that a mother who has given birth, um, that when a person who has given birth must be removed from the sanctuary, what I want to say about that is that I believe that birth and death and life and death are holy. And I experience that holiness, the holiness that is not constructed, but is the holiness of ever-shifting reality of lived beings. I experience that holiness is connected to the midbar, right? To the great deep, to, to home, to the wildness. And that holiness is as crucial in our lives as the ordered and constructed holiness that is our sacred space. We need to make time in our bodies and our lives and our awareness for that holiness, which we experience out in the world. And indeed, that wild holiness, as much as our ancestors may have worried about it, is part of what infuses with power the rituals that happen in the sanctuary. As a child, I spent a lot of time in the Midbar, at least the Midbar as, as far as you could get it in Fishkill, New York, which was the woods behind my parents' house and the creek. And there I encountered sycamore trees and raccoons and stones. And that was a wild place I felt comfortable with. But the wild place that felt like the biggest edge was when my parents would take me to the sea. And we would go to the ocean. And my father would teach me and my brothers to ride the waves. Me and my brother would, would spend hours in the waves. And my father would say, never turn your back on the ocean. He respected the ocean. He knew it was unpredictable and dangerous and it could knock you down. But he also loved it. He grew up, in fact, in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. <laughs> and spent his summers by the sea. And so he, he often brought us there. And I would feel that raw power of the, of, of the sea. And I still go there. I still go to the ocean when I want to touch that raw power of life. That is my wilderness sanctuary. Not this wonderful sanctuary that we're in now, but the one where I want, when I want to touch the midbar. So I brought, uh, to end with, a poem of mine about the ocean, um, which perhaps says something about this mystery that I'm trying to express. Um, and it will eventually appear in my forthcoming book of poems, which is called The Book of Earth and Other Mysteries. So I share them with you. I share it with you tonight um, as an offering to, to home, to the great deep, and to all the people who were outside the camp but who were really inside the sanctuary. And it begins with an epigraph from the Talmud, which is, The sages taught, there are some who say, a parent must teach a child to swim. Waves reach the shore like blood reaching the cells. Rhythm without cease. My feet in the foam, joy and wonder. Deep 
wind, salt, light, holy, all holy. A wave lifts me. I am a cloud, and it is the sky. The sea carries me like a child in the womb, like a star in night's cascade. I am a giant's daughter dandled on her shoulders. If a wave comes, says my father, don't run away. Dive into the wave. Then it won't knock you down. All day we ride the sea. Up, lift, down. My heart sings over and over again. Push up with the feet. Let water bear you skyward. The place at the top of the wave, chariot, cauldron, embrace. Then let it place you on the sea floor, not quite where you began. When I fall down and swallow salt, I struggle back up, squint, run to my mother to rinse out my mouth, run back to the waves. I don't want to miss even one. After many hours, the sun lounges in the west. We drive home sandy. My feet itch. Grit coats my hair. At night, clean in my bed, I can still feel the sea in my body. Up, lift, down, over and over. All my life, I follow my father's advice. Dive into the wave. Oh, sea, all my life, I greet you. Deep wind, salt, light, all holy. Lift me up. Call me into your circle. On this new moon of Nisan, this beginning of the Hebrew season of spring, may we all feel the blessing of the Tehom, the Midbar, the wild place that speaks. Now, go outside and play. Shabbat shalom.